We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing concern that some local media outlets are taking their editorial lines from Beijing. A party in a speech in New York as President Tsai Ing-wen made a brief stopover in the city on the way to the Caribbean. Taiwanese fraud suspects nabbed overseas being back in the news. Moves by the Railways Administration to improve its handling of incidents of crime. And news that a retired entertainer will be walking away from slapping the culture minister in public in the face without, well, facing any charges. But we'll begin with Kaohsiung Mayor Han Kuo-yu being pronounced the winner of the KMT's presidential primary on Monday. Han received 44.8% support in the KMT's opinion polls, ahead of his closest challenger, former Honhai chairman Terry Guo, who received 27.7% of the ballot. Former New Taipei City Mayor Eric Ju placed third with 17.9% of a support rating there, while former Taipei County Commissioner Zhou Shiwei got 6.02% support and Sun Yat-sen School President Zhang Yajong had a 3.5% support rating in the primary polls. Now, the KMT was set to announce the party's primary poll winner at a press conference, which was slated for 11am on Monday. However, the party opted to bring forward the announcement by some 25 minutes, as news of Han's victory was already leaking to the local media. Now, reports have been saying that Han's primary victory could result in a major shake-up in the party's power structure, breaking up the long-standing power structure traditionally dominated by the party's elite and squeezing out some of the party's more conventional old guard. So, Ross, hand one, much to jubilations of a certain population, but not very jubilations of the other part of the population. Well, based on a lot of the polling, and, and we all know that some or many polls in Taiwan could be undependable, <laughs> but if we look collectively at, at, at the direction of a lot of the polls in the weeks preceding the actual KMT party poll, most results were indicating that Han was in a good position vis-a-vis his opponents in, in the Kuomintang primary, as well as based on the structure of this particular poll. So we shouldn't be surprised that Han won this poll. And, and it's partly still this enthusiasm that Han's uh, supporters have coming out of his successful mayoral election last year. And also, uh, to be fair, we shouldn't just say that Han was great or that the whole primary system was poor or poorly designed. And there's some some arguments you could make about that. But we should also consider who his opponents were and how they performed during the, the last few weeks or months of this primary process. And were they able to make the sale to the public? And keeping in mind, this was a poll of the public. Uh, it was not a poll only of registered Kuomintang party members. So... Did Mr. Ju or Mr. Go, notwithstanding Mr. Ju's previous experience in politics, Mr. Go's experience in business, we're talking about two people who are very well known to the public. Uh, did they make the sale to the public? Not only is the answer no, but uh, given the large margin of victory for Han, obviously they did a very poor job of campaigning. And Brian, what about these reports of a possible shake-up in the KMT because of Han's victory? Yeah, it is quite interesting. Um, he is a very unconventional candidate, and he has actually the backing from members of the public 
to that he actually doesn't need to depend on the party to some extent. I mean, definitely when he is campaigning in 2020 presidential elections, he will need to depend on the local networks of the KMT to campaign and canvas and so forth. But he also has fans that are not explicitly KMT party supporters. Um, and also, it is interesting because he did run for KMT party chair in 2017. He has ambitions at uh, shaking up the party, and I think he's had that for a while. Um, I think uh, there's also concern that he might appoint, for example, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the head of, of Want Want, as potentially the KMT party chair if he doesn't become the KMT party chair himself. He definitely will have an influence on the future leadership of the party going forward. Um, this is something that Terry Goh tried to bank on when he was... Uh, trying to campaign against Han uh, to claim that Han will be disruptive of the KMT. But it is, a, it is a poll of the general public, and I think that did benefit Han. I think a lot of uh, Han's opponents, too, they just came in kind of too little, too late, uh, particularly where Terry Goh is concerned in terms of the advertising he put in and uh, trying to outreach to the public. Like he, he could have put in, he could have really put much more effort into that much earlier rather than have spent a large amount of money in campaigning near the very end. And what about the old guard in the KMT, Maing, Joe, Udini, etc., Ross? What do you think they're thinking? It's certainly fun to throw out phrases like old guard, heavyweights, and all these other cliche terms that English speakers sometimes use when describing uh, either the Guomindang or the Democratic Progressive Party. Uh, Another one is the deep green or the deep blue. Uh, So we got all these cliche phrases, which uh, I have not have personal fan of using. So you talk about someone such as my Joe. What does he want most? Does he want to retain some influence? Well, maybe, but the guy was a president for two terms. I think what he wants most is that a Gobi Dog candidate wins the election and that a DPP candidate does not. So whether or not Mr. Ma likes Han very much or has an intense dislike for Han, it doesn't matter because he ultimately either will support him or uh lukewarm support. I mean, he's not going to say, like, don't elect Hong Yu because he's going to upset the internal party structure. And I think the same would apply to, to Chairman Wu. I mean, Chairman Wu has tried to play it safe during this primary process. So, I mean, once it was clear that he was not a viable candidate because the public polling when he was at, when, when asked, do you support Wu Doni as the KMP candidate, was, was dreadful, single digits. Uh, so he, he knew fairly early in this process that he couldn't be a viable candidate, so he didn't run. Uh, But then his next goal was to maintain his status as party chairman. And and I wouldn't necessarily say he tried to play a kingmaker, but he tried to be a a friend to all and and guess correctly at times who would win this process. Uh, So ultimately, either he's going to remain as chairman and he'll support the candidate enthusiastically and hope that the candidate wins and that he can maintain his chairmanship of, of the KMT afterwards, or if they continue to implement their their past rule that the, the president should simultaneously be the party chairman, and if the Guomindang candidate wins, he'll, he'll be out. And if the Guomindang candidate loses the election based on past precedents for, for Taiwan politics, he would have to step down as well. So ultimately, he's going to support the Guomindang candidate. He may or may not keep his job. And if he's not the KMT chairman two months from now or eight months from now after the election, ultimately, it's irrelevant. The Guomindang will still be here. And there'll be a bunch of other people uh, you know, killing each other internally over at the Guomindang to try and run the party. So I, I wouldn't put too much focus on Wu Doni's future, or even Eric Yu's future. I mean, there was some media reports in the last few days, and this keeps with the theme that, that you're asking about, Gavin, you know, the future of the party. Hong uh, Yu wants to kick out a whole bunch of old guard people. And Eric Yu's been around the party for a while. Right? He's had a number of politically appointed jobs as well as elect, elected jobs in the central government and in, in local government. Uh, 
was the party chairman for a period of time and the presidential candidate for a period of time in 2016. Uh, but this media report said he, he joined the primary process w- with the ultimate goal of being the legislative UN speaker. So he's hoping to be on the party list uh, for, for, for the um, non-constituency LY seats and, and because he's a good guy and he was the candidate four years ago and everybody sort of kind of likes him and he didn't win this time. So we feel bad for him and he knows that. So it was all a, a plan by him to, to become the LY speaker if, if the Guomindang wins the majority. My, my point here is, you know what? It doesn't matter. If if that's not in the cards for him, if, if Hong Yu doesn't want it to happen, it doesn't happen. He's still going to campaign for, for Hong Yu. He still hopes that Hong Yu wins the election because it's not like Eric Ju wants the DPP to win the presidential election. Ultimately, uh, I think these these people care uh, more about Taiwan status and from their view, the Republic of China and uh, 92 consensus and using that as a basis for really, I think we have to give these people some uh, amount of personal credit and we may not agree with their views uh i'm sure brian doesn't but but <laughs> but but, but uh, i think ultimately they want to, their first goal is is that the gomindang candidate wins and whether or not they get some jobs afterwards these people will survive the gomindang will survive with or without them and uh, i don't think it's necessary to focus too much on those issues and what about the youth vote brian will hang you bring in the youth vote because of course eric jew centered his campaign on young people um, that's right, which is quite unusual. And Eric Chu did seem to have the support of young people within the KMT, which I thought was also unusual. Um, Han's support among young people does seem to be receding, anecdotally. Um, in terms of his rallies, for example, the composition is usually much older, whereas with earlier rallies of Han's uh, when he was campaigning for mayor of Kaohsiung, you did see a lot of younger people. And I think that's an interesting shift. Uh, there's been a lot of incidents of high school students staging pranks on Han, uh, making fun of him in, at press conferences or award ceremonies and that kind of thing. And so this has been reported on widely. Um, that being said, young people are, are outnumbered by older people in Taiwan, and so it is a question whether that will influence um, elections, really. Um, that being said, the KMT does also need to make sure that it does appear to be a party that has support of young people, some young people, and not a party of older voters. Um, that's not great for the image of the party. Well, it seems like Ju uh, tried to get the support of the younger voters by changing his hairstyle and wearing his glasses, eyeglass frames um, and, and wearing and t-shirts wearing with, with jackets. Yeah. Mike has tried to do that as well after the uh, notably in the, the past few years tried to have more support from young people and outreach more to young people by um, changing his his fashion. Yeah, he also <laughs> making he, funny he videos online. Hip and cool in his t-shirt and jeans. But, but, but one of the reasons also has a lot of hip hop videos. Those are well, one of the, but what, one of the reasons why I bring this up, and, and Brian, you're the expert in this. But yeah, just changing your eyeglass frames or, or your hairstyle or, or wearing a, a t-shirt with a jacket instead of wearing you know, the more traditional uh, suit and tie, that's not enough because young people see mm. through that. And, and that I to be so. to go back to your point, Brian, about <laughs> Han Goyu and, and last year, you know, it was just just his style of campaign. And we've made this point repeatedly on your show, Gavin, that uh, you know, compared to Chen Shimai, who is just a bit stiff, uh, and, and Han Goyu, uh, again, his, his style and part of it did have appeal to young people, Brian, and, and, and uh, it was just natural. And even someone like Ko Wen Jo, you know, the guy's not very hip, but his, his somewhat natural way of speaking and not being so, so prepackaged the way other politicians, not just in Taiwan, but around the world, uh, tend to be, that also helped with his mm. appeal for younger voters. So either either you have it or you don't. And, and sometimes you lose it too. And, and that may be what happens with Han Goyu, mm. right? But, but you know, someone like, like Eric Ju or Terry Goh trying to 
come up with that in a very brief period of time. It, it obviously didn't work, mm-hmm. right? And changing the clothes or, uh, in the case of Terry Go, trying to uh, do some advertising online. So, you know, just, it just mm-hmm. didn't work, right? Yeah, he, he clearly, too late. Mr. Go, if you're listening, you should get your money back from those advisors you hired <laughs> to do your, your advertising because it just did not go well and you really should be suing them for malpractice. I must admit, I did a double take on Eric Jew when I saw him in his glasses and hair. <laughs> I didn't know it was him. I had to go, was, is that him? It doesn't look the same anymore. I'll make the same point. He should also sue his advisors for malpractice because they didn't give him good advice because it didn't work. And there's some advice there from a lawyer. Anyway, moving on, the cabinet this week called on local media outlets suspected of taking their editorial lines under instruction from the China's Taiwan Affairs Office to fully explain their actions. Now, the statement follows a report by the UK's Financial Times, which cited unnamed journalists who work for the China Times and Zhongtian Television News Channel, who allege that their editorial managers take instructions directly from Beijing. Now, the Chinese government, surprise, surprise, is denying the charges and is claiming that the Financial Times is making things up, while the China Times and Zhong Tian are claiming the article is malicious fake news and they're threatening legal action against the London-based newspaper and any other media outlets that cite the report. So, Brian, we're not without citing the report. Brian, just in case they sue us, what do you make of this? Is the China Times running its editorial department from Beijing? This has actually been rumoured for some time. Um, this came up previously with a member of the National Security Bureau stating that he had heard that some media outlets in Taiwan were seeking Chinese approval before running stories. And so now it has exploded into the news because of an international media outlet reporting on it, citing these unnamed sources within uh, the China Times. And the, the pro-China bias of the Wantwan group is well known. Um, the chairman of the Wantwan group, Tsai Emung, has made no secret of the fact that his interest in acquiring media outlets is to promote pro-China views in Taiwan. Um, and also the, the Wantwan group is quite litig- litigious against critics. Um, they currently, or at least threatened to have a suit against the Apple Daily for reporting that they are taking money from the Chinese government directly. Um, and it's a question now what happens going forward. What kind of action will the Tsai administration take? Um, sometimes it's, it's, it, it, its ability to take action regarding this is limited because it will be accused of persecuting political dissidents. Um, news outlets that report on this will be accused of being fake news. And I think there is uh, uh, there are people out there who just believe that and, and just dismiss this. Um, it does have more credibility coming from national media outlet, but that also remains to be seen if uh, people accept this. Absolutely pathetic, Abbott. As Brian said, this has been in, in the news for a long time. Those of us who work in the media or have good relations with, with media people uh, know about this. But but the public knows about this as well, because as Brian said, it's been widely reported. So, so none of this is a surprise. The government agencies, as Brian said, have been looking into this uh, for a long time, uh, probably – even in the Biden administration, they, they would look into this because there was potential for violating uh, either laws or regulations, and not just on the national security side, but on the broadcasting side as well. Uh, and of course, this high administration, ever since they were they took office in May 2016, now three years have been looking into this. So this is not new. Uh, it's not even new in English language reporting. I, I don't know, Brian, if you've, you've written about this on, 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 in your publication, but, but this is not new even in English language reporting. It may be new for the Financial Times, so good on them for the Financial Times for covering this issue, but it is not new. And, and and the authorities have been investigating it. All that's happened in the last 24 hours was just kind of like repackaging what they're already doing. So the authorities are already doing this. It's in the Financial Times. A bunch of people here in Taiwan lose their minds because it's, in, it's an international publication of a of, of very good reputation, widely read. And then they run to the government and say, what are you doing about it? And the government says, oh, we're going we're to investigate. But they already were investigating. So they're just 
repackaging what they were already doing. But there is no no new information here. But to go to your question, Gavin, about what are they going to do, they'll probably do the same thing they've been doing over the last few months. They'll issue a fine to, to CTI, Zhongtian TV, or, or China Times. Uh, but are they, are they going to actually find a person who said, I'm the one who took a phone call from the Chinese government to direct uh, the editorial line of our publications. It's possible, but unlikely. Uh, the the people who are interviewed by the, the Financial Times, they're not the person who took the phone call, are they, Gavin? They're just saying, I, I, I heard, I know. They're claiming to know that their colleagues or their superiors got these phone calls from China. Um, yeah, and that's right. Uh, previously in May, seventy media representatives of seventy media organizations went to China for a conference, um, and that was led by the Wantwan Group. They included members of a, a senior staff of the China Times, CTI TV, CTV, uh, as well the, as well as the other Pan Blue media outlets such as the United Daily News. And while periodically there is uh, actions, for example, taken by the Times administration against small. Uh, websites that seem to be propped up by China are just directly reposting contents from China. These are usually small and not very influential. Um, it is also in the news recently, as also reported by the Apple Daily, that uh, 23 Taiwanese media websites just reposted content directly from the Taiwan Affairs Office, um, even not even bothering to convert from simplified characters to traditional characters. And that is just sloppy, and I'm not sure who that actually influences. Um, but now, now we do have these bigger media outlets with these pro-China ties, and I am not sure the time machine will actually take any substantial action beyond just a slap on the wrist. Um, what action would you propose, Brian? I also don't have great answers to that. Uh, <laughs> particularly before elections, you will be accused of just trying to use the China card to play that card and, and to stir up fears about China against your political opponents. But we can only take action if there's a violation of a law or regulation. And, and mm-hmm. again, as I said before, unless you could really prove mm-hmm. That, that there's something as blatant as, here's a dollar, now you say what we want to say. Then mm. there's not gonna, you're not going to find any law or regulatory violation, no matter it's, how it's much you do. Issues. It's one of the things that the Simon administration should have been uh, presented to the evidence much sooner regarding uh, these, these accusations, which have been talked about for years and years. Anyway, we'll move on from allegations of malfeasance and dodgy dinnings in the local media and move on to a trip, a trip to New York by President Tsai Ing-wen, who had a stopover in the Big Apple on the way to visit Taiwan's Caribbean islands this past weekend. Now, she attended a party at the United, in the New York office, rather, of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office, which apparently a bit of a shindig, and she met some United Nations representatives there. She also delivered a speech at Columbia University in which she called for international support for free and democratic Taiwan. Now, there were protests by Chinese groups outside the venue of the speech, and there were also protests by Chinese groups and opponents of Tsai outside the hotel, which I believe was the Hyatt in New York. So, Ross, a party, a speech and protests in New York... Well, people always want to claim that it's a breakthrough. That, so meeting with the uh, UN representatives of the countries that maintain formal diplomatic relations, meeting with those UN ambassadors in New York, it's, it's a breakthrough. Uh, not really, because ambassadors from those countries are resident here in Taipei. The president of Taiwan visits those countries and meets with the leaders of those countries because they do have formal diplomatic relations. So I wouldn't focus on that as being much of a breakthrough. Uh, The phone call from Nancy Pelosi, again, not a breakthrough. The Taiwan president has received phone calls from the Speaker of the House or or other prominent U.S. politicians uh, when when visiting the U.S. uh, 
not not a breakthrough there. Visiting New York, not a breakthrough. Making a speech at a prominent university behind closed doors. A closed door speech, in fact. Although the content yeah. the content was, was immediately released, so uh, it wasn't really, really closed door. What did happen behind closed door, and, and will probably leak eventually, is who else did she meet from the U.S. government, whether current officials or retired officials or people who are close to the Trump administration, but not actually in the Trump administration. And some of that occurred. Uh, when she was in New York. And some of it might occur in Colorado. Why, Gavin, might that occur in Colorado? Because there's a big kind of think tank security meeting taking place in Colorado this week, and she's going to arrive in Denver right on the back end of that. You know, one of these, uh, you know, secret cabals of, of prominent people from the corporate and the Not government. Not so world. secret, Russ. We've just told everybody. <laughs> well, but, but what they do behind closed doors is supposedly secret, right? So if you don't like these these mega, mega events, you know, these Davos kind of events, but this Aspen Security Forum, it's kind of like the Munich Security Forum and all these other international meetings were, were really important. You know, people more important than, than the three of us, Gavin, get to go and, and, and hobnob or, or people who claim to be part of track 1.5 or track 2.0 or 2.5. They go to these meetings. Uh, whether or not it actually uh, changes real events, who knows? But uh, she's going to be in, in Colorado right at the end of that. So there will probably be some more secret meetings with important U.S. government officials that eventually we'll hear about. And that would be that would be significant. But the, the events in New York itself are, are about as significant, I would say, as the events in the countries that she visited, you know, meeting with the presidents or the prime ministers or members of parliament or visiting uh, aid projects funded by, by Taiwan. You know, President Tsai has already done this multiple times per year during her presidency, as did Ma Ying-jeou and Chen Shui-bian. And so what is interesting is that it has received much more attention this time. The last time Tsai was in the United States, also as part of a stopover, was actually in April, but that did not see the media publicity that has been focused on this visit in particular. And so I wonder if it is a shift uh, in the general atmosphere between now and then. Um, it could just be that this time around, the uh, presidential office is better at publicity. However, um, it is also just, I think, the lead up to elections that there is increased focus on what will happen now. Um, talk of what will happen now at Tsai versus Han. Uh, and before elections, there is this general pattern of presidential candidates visiting the U.S., um, not only to meet with U.S. government officials, but also uh, Taiwanese overseas Taiwanese donors who are politically influential in Taiwan. And so Tsai did this before um, in April, and she did this again now uh, in, in the lead-up to elections. And actually, Han did the same thing. He also visited the U.S. in April. And I think it's actually quite likely he will also try to visit the U.S. and try to upstage Tsai in some form. Brian, as a fellow New Yorker, I, I'm absolutely shocked that you're denigrating the importance of Tsai visiting New York versus where she went in April. Brian, where did she go in April? In the, um, when she transited the U.S. That's right. Um, Where was visit, it? Visit you, she didn't in visit Guam. New York. Was it Guam yeah. in Hawaii, I believe? It, or, or, it, it was not New York. It was not the yeah. con- she didn't yeah. go to the continental U.S. in April, right? She did last year. Right? Oh. She went to Houston. Um, Guam. It was Guam. In, in April, right? Yeah. yeah so, uh, Brian, you're comparing. Uh, I mean, yeah. Guam is a great place. I encourage people to visit it. Mm-hmm. Are you comparing Guam to, to yeah, New York City? As Come a, on, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, these kind of meetings really can occur basically anywhere. They do not actually need to occur physically. And so what is more important usually is what happens behind closed doors or is not actually taking place in the form of a meeting. Uh, and so a lot of times this is a form of signaling. I think also the the uh, increase in tensions between the U.S. and China is another factor. Uh, Hong Kong, for example, is another factor that there has been international focus on these protests in Hong Kong. And so that is, is another reason for this, this change environment, uh, this change focus. 
Right, and of course, Tsai Ing-wen will be back in Taiwan on July the 22nd after going to those secret meetings that we can't talk about in Denver. Now, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and Taiwanese telecom fraud suspects were back in the news as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs thanked the Czech Republic for providing subsidiary protection to eight Taiwanese fraud suspects who were detained in Prague rather than being extradited to China, as Beijing had requested. Now, the Foreign Ministry says the Czech government has shown moral courage and pragmatism in protecting the rights of the Taiwanese nationals and refusing China's request for extradition. Now, the eight Taiwanese were arrested in Prague in January of 2018, and they were accused by Beijing of defrauding Chinese nationals in their home country. Now, that comes a week after South Korea repatriated 22 Taiwanese nationals convicted of telecom fraud there back to Taiwan. Different cases, though, Ross, of course. The the Korea one was hailed as South Korea stands up to Beijing when, in fact, that wasn't really the case. It was also hailed as South Korea is doing a favour for Taiwan, which was completely untrue. So so the people who came back from, uh, from Korea to Taiwan and they had done some jail time in Korea, uh, and at the end of the, the jail time, they were sent back to where they came from, Taiwan. Uh, very different than some of these other countries where the, Ty- the accused Taiwan, the Ty- Taiwan suspects, were not tried or put in prison in those countries uh, for, for very good reasons. In some of those cases, or most of those cases, there was no evidence in those countries other than the fact that the person was sitting there, they were living there, or a, call, a bunch of people was a call center. Uh, so, so very, very distinguished situations uh, where, where in those other countries, they say, hey, we can't put this person on trial here. We don't have the evidence. We don't have the victims. We're not going to bring all the evidence from China to our court. We're not going to bring the victim from China. The crime occurred in China. Uh, so we'll send the person to China. Uh, and some of those countries actually have extra extradition treaties. When you have an extradition treaty, there'll be very specific bases to object to the extradition, which the Taiwanese suspects and their lawyers would have tried and they failed. Uh, the, The most logical argument to make would be to say, uh, notwithstanding the extradition treaty, the, uh, as a matter of public policy, uh, on a human rights basis, this is an inherently uh, unfair, uh, impartial, not impartial court system uh, because it's controlled by the Communist Party. It doesn't reach you know, globally recognized standards for, for the administration of justice, etc. That appears to be what happened in the Czech Republic, where, where protestations were made to the Czech government. You cannot send these people to a, a judicial system that is just inherently bad. And that seemed to won the argument with the Czech government. It obviously, didn't win the, the, that argument didn't, didn't work with other governments that have repatriated Taiwan suspects to to China. Uh, but the Korea situation was different because Korea, uh, for whatever reason, said, we have enough evidence. We're going to put these people on trial here in Korea. We're going to put them in jail. And when their jail sentences are over, you know, just like any country that has put, put foreigners in jail for whatever reason, Gavin, I hope that never happens to you here in Taiwan. But if it did, at the end of your jail sentence, where would they send you? They would send you back to, probably send you back to the UK. They'd give you a plane ticket and tell you to leave. I'd get a good lawyer. I'd ring you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we know who to ring in case uh, any of us commit telecom fraud, which hopefully doesn't happen. Um, Yeah, it will get played in the media, however, as the tide is turning, that the international community is now sending up to uh, China and that perhaps in the future, Taiwanese telecom fraud suspects will be sent to Taiwan instead of China. And we only have this one case of the Czech Republic. And as was mentioned, South Korea is not exactly the same case. Um, at the same time, it is, it is a question what will happen in regards to 
uh, increasing tensions between particularly Western countries and China um, with the U.S.-China trade war and so on. Will other countries actually follow suit on this? I think it is it is an open question. Um, that being said, it will also not surprise me if countries just continue to deport telecom suspects to China because that is that is international practice. Uh, Spain, of course, being the big one recently. Um, yeah, yeah, that is right. But also just in terms of sorry to interrupt, but that, 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 that's one of those distinct, more distinguished situations because Spain actually has an extradition treaty with China. So when you have an extradition treaty, you're, you're starting with a lot of presumptions. You have to keep in mind Spain is, is generally considered a member of the family of Western democracies. Mm. So they would have gone through all their internal government processes to review uh, – the, the viability or, or, or the logic or, or the fairness, whatever words you want to use, the, the, the politics of entering into an extradition treaty with China. And, and eventually they did, according to their own internal procedures to enter into treaties, they did so. Uh, so when China comes to them and says, you got to enforce the, tre- the extradition treaty, we've identified some, some people in your country that are wanted by us. And according with the treaty, here's, here's the evidence that we need to provide you. Now, now detain those people and send them to China. And Spain did that. So again, if, if, if the Taiwanese suspects or their lawyers couldn't make the argument in the Spanish courts that uh, you know, the, the court systems in, in China are unfair, that means either they had bad lawyers or the Spanish judges and the Spanish government are just so inherently uh, beholden to China, which which – I don't think is is true. Uh, they wouldn't want, necessarily want to send people uh, to to a bad fate. Gavin, I'll just make one more important point uh, on on this topic, which is for all the Taiwanese who've been sent back to China, we've yet to hear any reports that said these people are falsely accused, and we have yet to hear any reports that say that in the Chinese courts or Chinese jails that they've received treatment worse than China, the way China treats its own people who are. Facing criminal charges. I think Ross made a good point there. Yeah, uh, yeah that's any... right. I mean, these, these, there have been no reports uh, to that effect, and so uh, usually after the suspects are deported to China, you don't hear too much about them. In the news <laughs> <after>. <laughs> which, which is not a sign of them disappearing forever, but just then that they, they, it, it is not an issue that that they are treated differently. Um, that being said, it is it would be. Uh, China would play this as a political card because if you do have telecom suspects being sent to China, even if this is according to international law, it would be foolish not to use this as as a uh, political uh, ways of uh, pr- applying political pressure. You might as well if this is happening already. Because of course, the, a lot of the time they want their people back as well because they're mm. with the same bunch of people that got busted. Mm. That's right. Usually, time, yeah. usually there is uh, mixed in with Taiwanese. Sometimes, um, sometimes Taiwanese are the minority in these these groups, these telecom uh, rings, and usually it's usually Chinese and Taiwanese working together. Um, and oftentimes, of course, the target isn't isn't China um, because of the fact that it's shared language and so forth. And so, um, yeah, that's that's why these cases are cases are treated together. Right now, moving on to some transport infrastructure news. The Railway Administration this week said it will equip its trains with surveillance cameras and install more ticket barriers at stations to improve its ability to handle incidents of crime. Now, the move follows the recent death of a railway police officer named Lee Jung Han, who was stabbed by a passenger who was on a train without a ticket at Jai Railway Station on July the 3rd. The police officer died a day later. Now, the Railways Administration says it will retrofit all of its electric commuter trains with security cameras by 2020 and ensure that all new intercity and commuter trains are equipped with security cameras and emergency intercom systems. The Railway Administration said it also plans to install more security barriers at stations to enforce a no-ticket, no-entry rule. So, Brian, obviously police officers stabbed to death, caught on film, 
a knee-jerk reaction from the Taiwanese Railway Administration or things they should have had in the first place? <laughs> I generally lean towards the latter. Um, these are things that they should have had in the first place. It is unusual that this uh, stabbing incident happened to begin with, um, that this, this, office, this, this railway staff member was stabbed to death and uh, was not, did not have security. security he, did, he was only carrying a baton, for example. Um, there's talk of equipping uh, people on the railways now with uh, security officers with pepper spray, for example, so this doesn't happen. Yet it is a question, then, why uh, this was... I mean, I, I just think that putting all these security measures into place now is not going to avoid this issue fundamentally when you do have people that are mentally disturbed and will carry out these incidents on uh, forms of public transportation. It is an attempt to avoid public criticism that you should have been doing this much earlier. And I think that usually is the response uh, to these violent incidents. Gavin, I'm choking on the on the contradictions and everything we're talking about here. First of all, we were talking about how evil China is, their court system, they're trying to influence the media. And then we're talking about, let's put cameras in more places here in Taiwan so Big Brother can monitor us everywhere we go. But, but in all seriousness, cameras are everywhere here in Taiwan. And in fact... These things are made in Taiwan, or they're made by Taiwan Taiwanese companies in China. They don't cost a lot of money. Well, not necessarily. There was news reports this week, of course, about ones in Taichung made mm. in China. Well, uh, but, but <laughs> yeah, yeah they could be. Ma- it's probably a Taiwanese company who manufactures in China. But but anyway, this is a this is a product that Taiwan companies make. They sell them all around the world. Uh, right here in your office building, Gavin. I think there are companies that make these products. Uh, so so these things are cheap. You could install them easily. They're all over. Uh, buildings, neighborhoods, right? We have cameras all over Ah, sidewalks. Well, good point. I mean, people have dashboard cameras, really common, or even on their motorcycle helmets. Cameras on buses. There there are cameras everywhere. So again, it's another contradiction. We're saying, oh my gosh, there should have been cameras in trains. Well, yeah, I suppose the cost cost is relatively small to do that. The technology is not complex. Well, what we often see here in in Taiwan when when there's a a situation involving crime, so let's get the camera tapes. It's always very, very poor quality, right? Because they get the lowest cost bidder to provide the cameras and then they don't maintain the, the quality of, of either the cameras or, or, or the, the signals or, or, or the storage. So, so you get really bad uh, uh, quality video footage when you do need to pull it to review an incident, which brings me to the next point, And that's consistent with what Brian said. If there were cameras on the train cars, so what? It would not have prevented this mentally disturbed person from doing what they did, whether they were carrying a a knife, a gun, a bomb. As some of the listeners may know, in the past, there's been bombing incidents on on, uh, the trains here in Taiwan. Um, Thankfully, didn't cause a large number of fatalities, but it has happened. Uh, And and having a camera probably wouldn't have have stopped. So ultimately, the issue here... More than more than more than um, more for for people who who are in need of of psychological uh, uh, care is training of police, and we've seen this so many times, Gavin, w- with incidents of public safety where a police officer was directly involved, as opposed to coming to the scene of a crime after a crime has occurred, and it just seems that over and over again, frontline police officers lack sufficient training to handle these kinds of situations. Right, and finally, before we go today, we're going to stand some legal news because Ross is a lawyer, and I thought he was going to give us his number earlier when he kept talking about helping people that got busted, but he didn't. Anyway, <laughs> the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office this week announced that 67-year-old retired entertainer Zhang Hui-jong will not be facing any criminal charges for slapping the culture minister in the face at an event in Taipei in January. Now, prosecutors say that Zhang was not charged for obstructing a government officer in the discharge of her duties due to the lack of evidence, and mainly 
because Culture Minister Zhang Lijun was at the January 22nd Lunar New Year luncheon for television entertainers in an unofficial capacity. Prosecutors also say that the entertainer will not be charged with causing bodily harm or of public insult because the minister didn't file any civil charges against her for assault. So, there you go, Ross. What precedent does this set? You can walk up to someone and slap them in the face and get away with it. That's what it says to me. I'd like to slap you right now, Gavin, because I know uh, I can get away with it. So where do you want it? We've got a witness, though. Um, Brian. I'll slap him, too. There's security cameras, too. There's security cameras. Uh, One of the key points you made... Gavin was, I wouldn't say so much as lack of evidence. It's the second point you made that uh, the prosecutors in a somewhat, uh, frankly, odd way reached the conclusion that we can't charge the accused with uh, obstructing a, a government official in the discharge of the public official's duties because the minister, my gosh, the minister was not appearing in, in her capacity as minister at an event for entertainers, even though she's the culture minister, and this organization is just like a nonprofit association that provides assistance to retired entertainers who are in need of you know, financial assistance. Uh, you know, not every entertainer goes on to a happy retirement, and so so this association, this nonprofit, actually receives money from the culture ministry, uh, but but due to the the way the grant is administered uh, and that it's kind of like a block grant to the to this nonprofit and then they get to spend the money how they want and the, the culture ministry is not intimately involved in that aspect uh, the prosecutor seemed to have reached the conclusion that the culture minister was not appearing as the culture minister at this event obviously it's it's very very silly and and this goes to show just like i was saying a few minutes earlier problems with police training i think there's a lot of problems with prosecutor and judges trainings here in in taiwan as well that they reach conclusions and that's why there's a lot of frustration in the public about the administration of justice. And we've heard a lot about judicial reform. And and, uh, I don't know if you'll disagree, Brian, but when, when people talk about judicial reform, for me, this is what it's talking about. It's talking about prosecutors or judges who reach really odd decisions. It's not about reducing criminal sentences. Well, that's always a part of judicial reform. Uh, but but or, or making Taiwan's uh, free speech or assembly laws more in line with, with Western notions of democracy, because Taiwan's really already done a lot of that. Judicial reform really means giving judges and, and prosecutors better training in how to reach good decisions. And, and this is just a blatant example uh, where the prosecutors reached a bad decision. And then they say to, to the culture, well, you know, if you want to bring charges against her, you want to you want to bring civil case against her, you could go ahead. I, the, the, to be fair to the, the minister, uh, I think she's taken the high road. She's saying, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go bring a civil case against this the retired entertainer who apparently has a bad temper and slaps people in public, uh, slaps ministers. Uh, so compliments, uh, you know, kudos to the culture minister for not pursuing this any further. She clearly took the high road, uh, but 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 a failing grade for the prosecutors, in my opinion. Um, I think that's right. And oftentimes judicial reform is, is aimed at targeting these very arbitrary decisions um, or actions taken by judges and prosecutors. Oftentimes the accusation is that uh, judges and prosecutors have, they operate on very strange moral beliefs about society, and so they make very arbitrary legal rulings, um, or they act to favor members of their own political camp. And so, for example, I think in this case, that would might perhaps even be the accusation that, for example, perhaps uh, this was ruled by someone that's pan blue, and so they're supportive of this entertainer for assaulting uh, the Minister of Culture, because this was specifically about um, disagreements with the culture, the, 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 the efforts to remove authoritarian symbols in, in Taiwan, former Chiang Kai-shek, sat- uh, Chiang Kai-shek statues that are present everywhere, the Chiang Kai-shek memorial, and so forth. Um, 
Well, I'm just going to have to, sorry, I have to vehemently disagree with what Brian said, because to me, that's that's exactly what judicial reform to me is not. There, there's no evidence whatsoever that the prosecutors are, are pro Chiang Kai-shek or pro-Gomindang or pro-authoritarianism. And that's why they reached the decision that they did, because they thought like, hey, she should, yeah, the culture minister deserved to be slapped for advocating the removal of Chiang Kai-shek symbolism. And we support the, 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 the lady who did it. There's no evidence that that's why the prosecutors made their decision. Brian, come on. It's clearly just, just a bad interpretation of the laws. And of course, Brian... If 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 the if the if the president or the premier pops out to the mm. local Seven Eleven mm. to buy a can of fizzy pop in the afternoon, well, they're they, not they're not there in official capacity. Are they in there in official capacity, or are they in a just a, a regular Joe Blow capacity because they want a can of fizzy pop? That's actually a really good point, Gavin. It's because, just very strange. because when you're a minister, I would say when you're a minister or the president or the premier. You're, 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 you are that person 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You're, you're never not the president. Now, maybe I'm looking at it from a very American perspective, but, but I think when you're appointed to a position like that, uh, it's kind of like a police officer. Okay, in America, police officers carry guns when they're off duty because they are trained public safety officers and they could always assist. You know, here in Taiwan, they don't do that, right? Officers don't carry guns when they're off duty. They're not allowed to. Uh, so here in Taiwan, they have very strict notions of when you're on duty, when you're on duty. You know, we were talking about Hangul Yu earlier, right? You know, mayors, even the president, I think, in Taiwan, they have to like submit an a, a, a application for leave when, when, when they're doing something that's not strictly in accordance with their official duty. So there's going to be a big debate about Hangul Yu, you know, whether or not he applied for leave to go campaign for president, right? There's just going to be this debate like, oh, you know, he didn't properly fill out the form or, you know, he's not giving, you know, nine hours a day to the mayor job, right? So uh, it's almost like the same thing with the culture minister. You know, Gavin, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she she submitted her form to the culture ministry to say, you know, at 7 p.m. tonight, I'm going off duty, <laughs> even though I'm going <laughs> to this, this event that's related. related. I'm work. going to this event that's related to the culture ministry <laughs> and our work, but because because it's not strictly, to, you know, supporting my work as the minister. So I'm, I'm, I'm applying for leave from being the minister <laughs> for that block of time. Maybe she did that. And she yeah, brought, she very strange. casual clothes on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think generally, though, she just wanted to avoid uh, making this into a big lawsuit. Just take the high moral ground. It does actually not reflect good on, uh, on the uh, Pan Blue Camp, actually. Um, or efforts to obstruct uh, efforts to realize transitional justice when you do have people arbitrarily attacking uh, government ministers in this way. And that's where we'll leave it. People attacking government ministers, and what a place to leave it on. Anyway, thanks for listening to this week's Taiwan This Week with me, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. Who's not going to give you his number if you need help, even though he's a lawyer. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.